Our scripture comes from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is God's word. What we have in this passage, uh, one of the most well-known passages in the New Testament, is a compressed version. Uh, Ken said this earlier, uh, Romans chapters 1 through 3, if you uh, have read that in a while. In fact, three years, I look back at it, uh, three years ago this very Sunday, we were in Romans chapters 1 through 3, embarking on that series. Uh, and so I'm, uh, I'm calling this a, a zip file. Now, not, I realize not all may know uh, what that is. That's something that takes big data files and compresses them into a very small space, a zip file. And what we've got here is uh, the gospel zip file. That's, that's Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Uh, so let's unzip this particular passage. It has three files. So instead of giving you two points today, I'm going to give you three. Uh, so, you know, every now and then there's a Sunday that has three but that means I've got to move through with three points in 30 minutes. You've got to be, uh, uh, you've got to be economical. But uh, when you open this gospel zip file, you've got three files. One's called the problem, uh, another's called the answerer, and the third one is called the response. And so that's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at the problem the gospel addresses. That's, that's roughly verses one through three. The problem the gospel addresses. Then we're going to look at the answerer. The gospel proclaims, that's verses 4 through 7. The answerer, the gospel proclaims. And then we will round it out, verses 8 through 10, with the response, the gospel conditions. The response, the gospel conditions. So when you open the gospel zip file, Ephesians 2, 1 to 10, you have three files. The problem, the answerer, and the response. So very first here. Getting right into our uh, three-part consideration, the problem the gospel addresses. Jeffrey read it to us. Look at it again, verses 1 through 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. Trespasses gets it more the willful, uh, the willfulness of sin, whereas sin is part of our nature, but trespasses is we, we, we were in fully, we were fully vested. In which, trespasses and sins, verse 2, in which you once walked, 
following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were, here it is, by nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now, that doesn't give us the rosiest picture of the, <laughs> of the human condition. Uh, but I'd rather not be lied to when my life is at stake. And so if you ask the question, you know, how, ba- how bad is it, Lord, before you? <laughs> the answer goes back. It's actually pretty bad. I am in my nature, uh, meaning nature means born this way, born into sin, Uh, I am a son of disobedience, the terminology here is, in whom, the disobedience is my own fault, but Satan capitalizes on my own fault, and Satan would have his total way in and with me if left to myself. But according to these opening verses, it's actually more than just one problem. If we took a survey going out the door, well, it would be cheating after this sermon, but let's take you say it took a survey coming into the door. And we polled all of you, and we said to you, uh, what, what's, the, what's the human problem before God? I would hope uh, most, if, if not all, would say sin. Sin is our problem. And all that sin is, sin is a, is a myriad of things. It's the bad we do, the good we don't do. It's our unrighteousness, our self-righteousness. It's missing the mark. It's intentionally going off the path. There's all kinds of analogies and metaphors and word pictures the Bible uses to collectively give us the picture of what sin is. But it's not just sin that's our problem. We look at this passage and we see that it's also this world system in which we live. It's under the influence of one who is irredeemable, Satan, The father of lies, as Jesus called him, referred to here in verse 2 as the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Now, when you look at verse 2, let's look back up for just a moment into chapter 1, where verse 21 tells us that Jesus is far above, verse 21 of chapter 1, Jesus is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And above every name that is named, not only this age, but the one to, that is to come. So, so why do I take us back to, to chapter 1, verse 21, in the context of chapter 2, verse 2? Satan is not Jesus' equal opposite. The emphasis of Ephesians has already been that Jesus is everything. Jesus is the everything of God, and there he has no equal. And so even the way it's phrased in verse 2, the prince of the power of the air, Satan is in a less than position. Still powerful, but in a less than position. So looking at verses 1 through 3, to say, as verse 1 does, that we, each of us, were dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked, on into verse 2, what does that mean? It means we have, each one of us, personally, personally participated in an old rebellion that Satan instigated and we fell for. You say, now wait a minute, what do you mean we? (laughs) I mean, I'm responsible for myself. Are you you saying that uh, Adam and Eve's fault applies to me? Think of it this way. 
Every human being, past, present, and future, has Adam and Eve on their fantasy team, right? It's the playoffs. We're going to see today who goes to the Super Bowl two weeks from now. And, you know, if you uh, play fantasy sports, you know you're doing nothing. I mean, you're just sitting there watching the pros do their thing. And yet, if you play fantasy sports, you talk about your team, your points, your wins and losses. Well, it's, it's the same with humanity. I'm just giving you that as, a, as kind of a parallel thought, only it's compounded with, with us in, in reality. But the problem the gospel addresses is that every human being, downline from Adam and Eve, is, like them, made in the image and likeness of God, but also, like them, we are each one of us alienated from God as a result of our sin, same as happened with them. We see, verse 1, we are in sin willfully, trespasses. We are in sin personally, just the reference to sins. Sin is evil. It's personal evil. It's social evil. We need to understand that evil is far more complex than just the wrong choices of individuals. Sin is social as well as personal. Here's the problem the gospel addresses much more fully stated. We not only have to be personally redeemed from sin, our own personal skin in the game, if you will, We also have to be uprooted from how embedded we are in the world system. Let me say that again. We don't have to be redeemed. We not only have to be redeemed from our own personal sin, our contribution to uh, what Plantinga calls the uh, vandalism of shalom, God's design for human flourishing, and we've marred that and gone away from that. That's our sin. We not only have to be redeemed from that, our personal guilt before God, We also have to be uprooted from how embedded we are in the world system. And so this is what being redeemed by God through faith in Jesus Christ, God's grace to us in Jesus, this is what being redeemed by God does for us. It removes the penalty of sin that we personally incur. Jesus removes that from us when he redeems us. But it also... Redemption also uproots us from the power of sin, which comes from living in a world that is the territory of Satan, who is the relentless enemy of God. Now, at least we, people, can be turned from our hostility to God. Satan cannot. Satan will not be turned. His is permanent. Now, looking at verses 2 and 3, note, just as you look at the passage, verses 2 and 3, just let your eye take it in. Note, when you're looking at verses 2 and 3, the problem is, for us, our problem is not just the consequences of following the passions of our flesh. See that phrase in verse 3, the passions of our flesh? We've all followed those passions, both in unrighteous and self-righteous expressions, and thereby we personally need the redemption of God. We need the grace of God in Christ. But the problem is also, look at the line in verse 2, that we followed the course of this world. It's both. I want you to see the both and. Verse 3 says we follow the passions of our flesh. Verse 2 says we have followed the course of this world. So sin is personal, 
Sin is my unrighteousness. It's my self-righteousness. Sin has me dead to rights before God because I'm a willing participant in it. But the power of sin is animated by an absolutely malign creature gone irredeemably bad called the devil. Verse 2, there he is. His personal name is Satan, means accuser. He's not a cartoon character, nor is he behind every bush. But he is the real enemy of God, and therefore the real enemy of those in whom God has put his image and likeness. Jesus said he only wants to steal, kill, and destroy. He deceives. He is evil incarnate. Did you realize simply, I, I missed this for years, did you realize simply adding the letter D to evil gives you devil? <laughs> now you know. This world under sin is his domain to work his evil in and upon us. Now he doesn't make us sin. That's a careful thing we have to distinguish. Satan has never made you sin. What he does is he's very opportunistic with our sin. He tempts us to sin. Now, Paul writing as he does, let's take a step back. So we've been sort of immersed in this. We've got personal sin. We've got this world system that's under the power of Satan, and that this is our problem collectively. We've got to be uprooted from our embeddedness in the world system, and we've got to have our own guilt covered. But Paul writing as he does here about uh, the evil that the devil exerts over the world, it, it doesn't mean everything in the world is bad. Okay. Don't, you, don't, you don't have to take a pessimistic, cynical view uh, of, of the world just because the world system uh, is as it is. Uh, you know, I too love old Louis Armstrong's uh, song, What a Wonderful World. You know, I'm not even going to try to imitate his voice, even though I could this morning because I'm a little bit froggy this morning. But to say, as verse 2 says, that this world is Satan's domain, verse 2 says that, verse 2 says that it's subject to the devil's influence, it doesn't mean everything is awful. It means nothing is immune from the corruption of sin that Satan capitalizes upon. So verse 2 is not saying the world is awful and it ought to just all burn up. Verse 2 is saying nothing is immune from the corruption of sin that Satan capitalizes on. I want you to get the both and of the problem here. The problem the gospel addresses, the reason that we are in our nature, human nature, not canine nature. I've got dogs at home. They're in a different category than people. They live in this world system and are subjected to the evil in it. But Canine nature and human nature are not the same things before God. So all dogs go to heaven, right? Not all cats. I don't know. The jury is still out on that. Sorry, I've just created more division in the church. Sorry. But the problem the gospel addresses, the reason that we are naturally dead to God, that's the word that gets used, dead. And we're dead to God even as we live and move and have our being and breathe in and out and do all the things that we do in a given week. The reason we're dead before God is that we use our life to follow the passions of our flesh. 
to follow the course of this fallen world, both. That's, that's who we are. If no intervention of God comes, that's who we are. No one is neutral. We are not for God, none of us, until he makes us so. But because God is for us, this is how the gospel turns from bad news at first to good news. Our first consideration is the problem the gospel addresses. We've got to square with it. But this takes us now to our second consideration of three is the answerer that the gospel proclaims. We're not left in our problem. Now, I'm intentionally using the term answerer as opposed to problem. When we think problems, we think answers or solutions. But the gospel doesn't take us from problem to answer. The, problem, uh, the gospel takes us from problem to answerer. It takes us to the person of Jesus, God the Son. And I'm also intentionally using the word proclaim, the answerer the gospel proclaims, because I, I want to try to get, convey some sense of the shout this from the rooftops quality of what it means for God to intervene on our born this way condition, born into sin. Sin is as natural as breathing. And so uh, look at verse 4. So verse 1 to 3 gives us our problem, but, but now we pivot. Verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us. Though we did nothing to earn that. In fact, we did everything to push him away from us. This is marvelous. He must be rich in mercy if he's going to love the way lavishly that he does. Verse 5, even when we were dead in our trespasses, a repeat of the word in verse 1, he made us alive together with Christ, as alive as Christ is in, Jesus, in the Lord's own presence is how alive we are in Christ. By grace you have been saved. And then he's going to punctuate this again later in the passage. I love this. Um, this answerer, putting verse 4 and 5 here with verse 1, Jesus Christ, God's answerer, didn't come into this world to make bad people good. I'm going to make a distinction for you, a difference, and then give you why I think this difference is important. Our default way of thinking is that, you know, God wants to make bad people good. But that's really not why Jesus came to this world. He didn't come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people live. What's the difference? If Jesus' mission was to make bad people good, then the main point of his work would be moral formation. And we have nothing against moral formation. That's a big part of what's coming in Ephesians. Chapters 4 through 6, a lot of moral formation. But it would be basically about behavior modification. If Jesus came to make bad people good, then that's really what he's after, is just behavior modification, retooling us. Just to get you to act right. But aren't there not, but think this out with me. Aren't there non-Christians, many, who are relatively good people? You say, no, no, you need to get to know some non-Christians. <laughs> there are many non-Christians that are, are wonderful people, very good people. In fact, some are even better people than some confessing Christians. There are people who in their spirituality, who consider themselves spiritual people, 
They even draw upon the example of Jesus. They like Jesus. He helps them become their best selves. So the scandal of the gospel, really, if the gospel was, hey, um, come to Jesus and he'll make you better, there's no scandal in that. The scandal of the gospel is that you're dead before God. You have nothing to commend. And you, you, there's no alarm clock that's going to bring you out of this that you said. It, it, it depends entirely on the work of God for us out of grace. And so the scandal of the gospel is if you think yourself a good person, if you think the point of life is to be a good person and Jesus is just all right with you, gospel proclamation of God's mercy and grace, it doesn't compute dead to God? I mean, try that out with somebody who thinks they're a pretty good person, thinks they're a spiritual person, dead to God. I'm, but I'm spiritual. I, I, I don't feel dead to God. In fact, I feel like I have a connection to God. I'm a good person. Many of our neighbors believe that. That's not why Jesus came to us as he did. It wasn't to seek out good people or to make bad people good people. You know, that's what a lot of people think Christianity is, and we've given them that impression. They think that Christianity is a good people club. It's a a gathering of people who've getting their lives together. We do want to get our lives together. That's not the point. Jesus didn't come in this world to make bad people good. He came to make dead people live. You don't go to a cross to make bad people better. You go to a cross for dead people who cannot live without a life exchange, without your life, the life of God in the person of Jesus for the deadness in us. The life that redeems our life is a resurrected life. And thus does verses 6 and 7 say, look again at it, verse 6, he raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages... He might show the immeasurable, here it is again, riches of his grace. You've got richness, rich in mercy in verse 4. Now riches, the immeasurable riches of his grace in verse 7. In kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God doesn't give us an answer to our problem. He gives us an answerer. One who doesn't cheat death. He beats death. Death being our ultimate enemy, capital D, death. And besides that, I mean, it would, it would be enough if it was just that. But both, again, verse 4 and verse 7 emphasize the riches, the embarrassment of riches that we get in his mercy and in his grace. What does that mean? What, what does it mean that our answerer, is as rich as he is in mercy, verse 4, and grace, verse 7. It means he never tires of dealing with the central human need, which is not to make us uh, bad people good people, but to make us alive in Christ, to make us alive to Christ. Don't misunderstand me here. To say our central need is not to be made good doesn't mean it's okay to be bad. I'm not saying that. If anything, uh, modern evangelicalism needs more moral formation. And 
my anticipation, you know how every generation tends to correct the ones that they, they see in their, their predecessors that, that something is off and amiss. And so they tend, that becomes their emphasis. You know, there's going to be a generation of Christians eventually that, that say, you know, Christianity just seems really immoral. We need to, we, we need to tighten up. <laughs> and we'll welcome that when it comes, hopefully. In fact, I, I was uh, discussing with a friend this week, we were talking about social gospel and evangelical gospel. I was making a contrast with him. And uh, I was telling him, you know, in a, well, the difference between a social gospel and an evangelical gospel is that in a social gospel, because we've got a lot of evangelicals that are afraid of the social gospel, in a social gospel, Jesus identifies with the human condition but really expects no change. I mean, he's really not about redeeming the human condition. He's just about identifying with it, sympathizing with you, sitting in with you, standing with you, protesting with you. That's sort of the, the emphasis of a social gospel he expects no change. In an evangelical gospel, Jesus both identifies with the human condition, cares deeply about the thriving of people and the flourishing of people, but he also transforms his people. An evangelical gospel is marked by the expectation that we are being changed by Jesus to look more like Jesus, to care more about the things Jesus cares about, which is equal parts doctrine and morals and relationships. We're coming up to verse 10 where we get the famous words about where is workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works is verse 10, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In a social gospel, good works are the way you become a Christian. Did you hear that? In a social gospel, good works are the way you become a Christian. You earn it. You commend yourself to God. Look, Lord, I'm better than other people. I get it. But in an evangelical gospel, you don't have any goodness to commend yourself to God, neither before belief or even after believing. It's still about Jesus. And how he covers us. God makes us good by applying Jesus' own goodness to you and me. And then good works are, a, are an act of worship to the one who has made us alive to himself. So here we can segue to our third and final consideration. The response that the gospel conditions. The response the gospel conditions. My emphasis here is on conditioning the point in being grace recipients is not to make us better than other people, as I've tried to establish. It is to make us alive to God, which means what? If we're alive to him, we will devote ourselves to doing the kinds of things he's doing in the world. Verses 8 through 10 here is the most well-known corridor in this well-known passage. Look at it again. Verse 8, by grace you've been saved through faith. That's a repeat of what he has in verse 5. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no one may boast, that is, boast in ourselves, that we did something to turn God's head. Heaven is not a collection of Phi Beta Kappas, you know, the best and the brightest, who God was really impressed with and said, yes, yes, you, yes, oh, you, you have done so much. Come in. You've kept your nose clean. Great. Come in. Not as a result of works, verse 9, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship. That word means masterpiece. All the ways the scripture tells us how much 
we are cared for by God. We're his masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The response, the gospel conditions. Look, according to this passage, our good works aren't even our own. <laughs> Verse 10 says he's prepared them beforehand. Now, I don't take this to, as a, in a deterministic way that God has, you know, plastically, woodenly thought out every single work that you're going to devote yourself to, though God does specifically call us and send us specifically to people and to places. Certainly he does, but, but you don't have to read this like programming. God's not programming us. Workmanship here in verse 10, again, it conveys this idea of masterpiece. And terms like this, they really do tell us we have an embarrassment of riches in the gift of God's grace to us in Jesus. We are his masterpiece? I mean, that's kind of hard to take in. It's easier to get down on myself rather than allow myself to be lifted up by this. Someone once said, the beauty of the gospel is how God is able to humble us all without humiliating any of us, and how he's able to elevate us all without exalting any of us. He exalts his son, but as he exalts his son, all the boats are lifted. As he exalts his son, the people of God are elevated. Jesus is the exalted one. And you and I do get elevated when our faith is in him. And I want that to encourage you. These first three chapters of Ephesians are marvelously encouraging. We need this encouragement. We need the the encouragement of knowing that the whole project of God in dispensing his grace to us so lavishly is because he wants it displayed at the end of, of all things. That things unseen and things seen, everybody sees God's decree that the exaltation of Jesus includes in his train, as it were, people of every tribe, tongue, kindred, nation elevated in the love and grace of God to us in Christ. We get grace gifted to us. Some, Some look at this passage and say even faith is gifted to us because They think that in order, um, that because good works, as he puts it in verse 10, even good works seem to be gifted to us. I mean, the emphasis is on everything that God does for us in the first three chapters. He doesn't believe for us. That's not the point of that. But he conditions, he brings, he prepares beforehand, and we respond. The passage says it's God, start to finish, but we do have a response to make. And our response is in good works. The passage comes full circle here. Verse 10, or sorry, verse 2, he uses the term walked. See it? You used to walk following the course of this world. Verse 2, following verse 3, the passions of our flesh. But now we walk in good works. That we should walk in them. Verse 10. Look at that how, that, how walking sets the passage in verse 2 and down in verse 10. We were created for good works that we should walk in them. And what does that mean, to walk in good works? It means that life for God's people in Christ becomes about responding to what God has done for me in similar ways, exporting that out to others. How so? Has God shown me mercy? (laughs) He has. 
Show others mercy. That's a good work. Good works aren't just the projects that you sign up for at church. We're going to go out here and do this. We're going to go across the world and do that. Those are good works, but good works are also about the character of the church on display. Has God been kind to me in spite of my wronging him? Yeah. In fact, uh, verse uh, 7 uses the word kind. God has been kind to me in spite of my wronging him. Show others that kindness, especially those who've wronged you. Yeah, it's hard. It sure is hard. But that's a good work. And that good work has been prepared beforehand for us to walk in. Kindness. It's even a fruit of the Spirit. Has God adopted me? (laughs) It's been the whole drivetrain of the first part of Ephesians. Yeah, he's adopted me. So consider adopting someone else. At least, at the very least, consider befriending others. You know, if if you just took on the good work of befriending other people across all these cultural divides we have today, dog lovers and cat lovers, just start there. You know, I'm a dog lover. I like cricket. Is cricket in here? She's a cat lover. She's my neighbor, office neighbor. Love cricket, but she loves cats. She has cats. I have dogs. And yet, in Christ, we get along just fine. Maybe a silly example helps you sort of extrapolate out from there, okay? That there's all these cultural divides around us, and they are, a lot of them are artificial. I'm not saying there aren't issues attached to them that are significant, but a lot of them are just artificial. Do you know where the passage is going, by the way? That the very thing Jesus has done for us is broken apart. All of these cultural divides. He's creating in the church this, well, this is next week. I won't get there. But just a little prime, your, prime the pump there for it, all right? Good works, what are they about? They're about following Jesus into the places and to the people he goes to. If Jesus will have something to do with them and there, then the church has no business saying, we're not going to have anything to do with them. We're there. And when we do that, you know what? We just punish ourselves. We miss where God is going and where God already is and what he's doing. And good works is so much about following Jesus into the places and the people he goes to until the people in those places associate you with him. That's what we want. Now, I've gone past time, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kill the last song. Not kill it. I'm just going to say we won't do it and, and take a note in the next hour that I need to be a little quicker. So I apologize to Ken and to the band as they've worked on that last song for us. We'll sing that in the next hour. Come back if you want to about 11.55 in the next hour, and you can sing it with us. I invite you to stand with me, and uh, let's pray together and have a benediction. Um, and then remember, we have to clean the room, so uh, part of the problem when I keep, keep us extra is I get fussed at for, uh, uh, for uh, keeping folks in. So if we can take our visiting out, uh, that would be appreciated. Uh, Father, you have shown us mercy and kindness and the riches of your grace. It really is an embarrassment uh, how good you've been to us. But, you know, I'd rather be embarrassed 
by that than by many other things we can be embarrassed about in the church. Thank you that that's the good embarrassment of just how kind and deliverance-oriented, redemption-oriented you are. And Lord, help us to spread that, uh, that you would make us as infectious with the gospel as we understand COVID is, Uh, that you would even make us as infectious as the UK strain that is coming after it, that just in our presence, people begin to associate us with Jesus. And if that brings trouble, that you would give us courage and faith to stand in that Not stand up for ourselves, but to stand fast and see you move and work in ways you do. And if that brings us welcome, that we capitalize on that welcome and we see people become followers of Jesus. And that is the most exciting thing we could ever see in this world. Lord, would you excite us again? Would you thrill us again with who you are and what you want and where you're taking us and where you're already going? And that we will see our fears being killed one by one by one. And seeing faith replace and seeing us take this beautiful gospel that you've given us in zip file here. And it opens up and it's all this marvelous truth that we find people around us are receptive to because you have been working. Lord, we would like to have the blessing of being there for the harvest. Would you accomplish that? Because you're good and you do good. We thank you for what we've been able to sing in this place today, for what we've been able to confess and what we've been able to hear. Uh, Lord, may it make a difference in the way we actually live and move and have our being. In Jesus' name, amen. Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.